You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this morning, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And we're going to be reading together verses 1 through 9. You'll find this on page 926 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of God. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, again, Paul and Silas are journeying to another destination for the sake of the gospel. And this time they traveled on the Ignatian Way, westward 62 miles to Thessalonica. And as was his custom, Paul visited a local synagogue and was asked to speak. So on three successive Sabbath days, he expounded the Old Testament scriptures. And his aim was to prove from the word of God that Jesus is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah that God had promised. He is the son of David and the offspring of Abraham and the seed of the woman. And not surprisingly, the response to Paul's ministry was mingled. Some of it was good. Some of it was bad. There were those who were persuaded and joined them as converts to Christianity. There were others who rejected the gospel and thereby judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And still others became jealous and stirred up good-for-nothings into a mob. And they tried to impede the evangelistic endeavors of the missionaries and, for a time being, they were successful. The same kind of dual response was evident in all of Paul and Silas's travels. You know as well as I do how they encountered both belief and unbelief, reception and rejection. 
And here in Thessalonica, it was no different as the opposition began to mount. Paul even told the Corinthians at one point, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Everywhere they went, a fragrance of death to some and a fragrance of life to others. Nothing less than the future salvation or damnation of immortal souls. And as Paul said, who's sufficient for this? Because only God can bear a burden like that. Eternal salvation or eternal damnation. We are to be faithful to the scriptures and obedient to the great commission. And with infinite wisdom and sovereign authority, the spirit is the one who does the rest. So the two missionaries had gained a reputation of capsizing the world, apparently. That's why the mob shouted, these men have turned the world upside down. And it shows, at least to me, that their ministry had made a difference. They had fulfilled their commission. One way or another, for weal or for woe, a faithful ministry will have its effect. The disciples must have discovered a plot to persecute both Paul and Silas because when the mob tried to apprehend them, they were nowhere to be found. Hidden away, the missionaries escaped being seized by the crowd. And of course, you can imagine how this frustrated the mob. So they had to find a scapegoat. They grabbed Jason because he was the one who had hosted the men. And as an accessory to their so-called crimes, he would be the obvious choice. And isn't this another illustration of that promise set forth in the very beginning? Do you remember? God said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the gospel had stirred up that age-old enmity between the seeds. And throughout human history, the godly seed has been persecuted by the ungodly seed. It happened then, it happens today, all over the world. Because there is no partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. There is no fellowship between light and darkness, between Christ and Belial. The continual struggle between the wicked and the godly is simply the outworking of Genesis 3.15. And this morning, I would like us to focus attention upon the Apostle Paul's preaching. What was it that God used to bring many sinners to faith in Christ? And what was it that aroused such violent opposition among the crowd? On three successive Sabbath days, Paul proclaimed the truths of Jesus. And as we have noted, his preaching brought two very different responses. Jesus even warned us. He said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Those who believe in Christ are blessed with spiritual understanding. Those who blaspheme and reject the Son are cursed with spiritual blindness. So let's consider the apostles' preaching of Christ to those who are in Thessalonica. 
First, I want you to notice that the nature of Paul's ministry was to reason from the scriptures. His preaching, in other words, was based upon the word of God. The Bible was his ultimate authority. He didn't try to impress you or them with human philosophy or cultivated oratory. His aim, as all ministers ought to aim, was to persuade sinners about the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture was his guide. Paul would reason from nothing else. As an ambassador, he calls himself an ambassador of Christ, his duty was not to speak what was on his mind. You and I both know that ambassadors should never speak for themselves, but they should always speak for their sovereigns. That's their job. Christ sent Paul to preach the gospel, so the gospel is what he preached. And besides, Paul knew that apart from the scripture, his ministry would have absolutely no effect. God has not promised to bless anything else in the conversion of sinners. It's the word. He has given his pledge to bless the preaching of his word. Elder Gilliland read it this morning. My word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word is never spoken in vain. It never fails to produce a result. Isn't that incredible? It may not be the result we desire. We may not fill the sanctuary, but it will bring a result. Like rain that often falls on barren rocks and dry sand, there may be no visible fruit. But those upon whom it falls will be without excuse, and they'll be accountable. You can never hear a sermon and be left unaccountable. And yet the shower may fall upon fertile ground and produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. Because God has a purpose for every single drop that falls either on barren or fertile soil. Every single one. And at the very least, as we said, those who hear the preaching of his word will be inexcusable. And this was one of the foundational and guiding principles of Paul's ministry. That's why he reasoned with them from the scriptures and no other way. It's the scriptures. An historian writes that when the noted Dr. Paulich of Mellerstadt heard Martin Luther lecture at the University of Wittenberg, this is what he said. That monk will confound all the learned doctors, propound a new doctrine, and reform the whole Roman church because he studies the writings of the prophets and evangelists. He relies on the word of Jesus Christ, and no one can subvert that, either with philosophy or with sophistry. He knew what was going on. And I want you to notice as well that Paul did not lay aside his reason when he expounded the scriptures. He employed his God-given rationality to explain the word of God. There is a saying, and it goes like this, very simple. Reason is the handmaid of faith. It doesn't replace it, doesn't go above it. Reason is the handmaid of faith. Because the Lord has seen fit to reveal himself in Scripture through language. 
There's grammar and syntax and context and literary styles and argumentation. And he's endowed humanity with reasonable souls with which to think. In expounding the Bible, as we think his thoughts after him, we reason together. One of the fundamental principles is that God does not contradict himself. If you find an apparent contradiction in the Bible, Scripture isn't wrong, you are. That's a fundamental principle of expounding the Bible as the Word of God. He says, come now, let us reason together. And I am amazed, and perhaps you might be too, oftentimes at educated professionals who for some reason turn off their brains when it comes to religion. In our day, because it all depends on experience, there is little need, they believe, for rationality. If it feels good, do it. As long as I can feel warm inside, everything's okay. No, no, no. Let's love God with all of our minds and let's reason together. Scripture is filled with truth and evidence about the truth of Christ and the reality of salvation. And that's why Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. But then secondly, the content of his preaching was the revelation of Jesus Christ. From the scriptures, he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then he said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He did not say it was advantageous for Christ to suffer, though that is true. He was not simply highlighting the utility and the value of the Messiah's work. He said it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise. Absolutely indispensable that he die, that he rise from the dead. Jesus had to suffer. And Jesus had to rise. And these two things are non-negotiable. In God's redemptive plan, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are both central and essential. This is what Paul told the Corinthians. At the beginning of the resurrection chapter, as we call it, 1 Corinthians 15, this is what he said. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now someone might ask me, well, why? Why was it necessary that though innocent, Jesus had to die? Couldn't God have spared his own son and found some other way? No, of course not. As we said this morning in the inquirer's class, would the father have crushed him if there was any other way possible? Actually, it was in the men's Saturday fellowship we said that. Would God have crushed his own son if any other way was possible? And I think there are at least four good reasons why it was absolutely necessary. First, The death and resurrection of Christ was necessary because of God's decree. From before the foundation of the world, he ordained whatsoever comes to pass, including the cross. 
Peter even says this explicitly in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, and I quote, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What that means is that in that unsearchable divine counsel, God planned the son's crucifixion. And there is no force in heaven or on earth that could thwart his purpose. In Revelation 13, 8, John refers to those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Slain from the foundation of the world. How can that be? Well, because since in God's eternal purpose, it was as good as done. He's slain from the foundation of the world. Reason number one, it's necessary because of God's decree. Second, his death and resurrection were necessary because of God's covenant. In that eternal counsel between the Father and the Son, a covenant was made. Theologians call it the covenant of redemption, and it was agreed upon from eternity. If you can wrap your mind around that. And this is why the life of Jesus is portrayed throughout as a mission. He was commissioned as the Messiah to accomplish salvation. He had a command to obey. He had a righteousness to fulfill. He had a baptism to suffer. And he had a work to finish. And he had a special mission as the Messianic King. And in that covenant between the Father and the Son, before time began, he agreed to die as a sacrifice and to rise for our justification. My old professor, Meredith Klein, put it this way. The messianic mission performed on earth began in heaven. Jesus was sent to earth on a covenantal mission from the Father, and all of the messianic psalms allude to the eternal communion between the two. The commitments made in that covenant of redemption are reflected in many places of Scripture. And so it was absolutely necessary that Christ fulfill the stipulations of the covenant. The incarnate son would never be disobedient or fail to fulfill his mission. So the first reason is God's decree. The second reason is God's covenant. The third reason that the death and resurrection of Christ were necessary is because of God's word. He made a promise to send the woman's seed who would crush the devil's head. And through the ensuing centuries, he reaffirmed that promise with ever greater clarity. And perhaps nowhere did he speak more plainly in the Old Testament about this promise than in Isaiah 53. Very familiar passage. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Fully 800 years before the incarnation, that prophet predicted the crucifixion with those words. And then Jesus came and he declared to the listening Jews that God's word cannot be broken. It's God's word. 
And when he appeared to the disciples as the risen Christ, this is what he said. Everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. He had to die. He had to rise again. God's word necessitated it. And he made this clear when he was walking and talking with the two on the road to Emmaus. He said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? God's decree, God's covenant, God's word, and fourth, the death and resurrection of Christ was necessary for man's salvation. When mankind transgressed and fell into sin, God was under no obligation to save. None. The entire human race, you and I included, was guilty and corrupt and now suffering under a curse. And it would have been perfectly just for the Lord to destroy man and simply to start over. But you see, while justice demanded man's death, mercy was eager to forgive. And both of those are God's attributes. So the question was, how is he going to reconcile these two equally ultimate attributes? In other words, God's justice and God's mercy are equally important. They're equally ultimate. His justice demands satisfaction. The wages of sin is death. His mercy is rich and great and longs to be extended. If man is to be spared from hell and blessed in heaven, both of these have to be engaged, his justice and his mercy. God cannot deny any of his attributes. So in the messianic work of Jesus, both divine attributes are marvelously and graciously harmonized. In God's plan of salvation, he shows mercy to sinners by forgiving our sins while at the same time doing no injury to his truth and justice. Ezekiel 34 says, The Lord, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How do you do that? Forgive iniquity, you can't clear the guilty. Moses was, must have been scratching his head. God is as true to his threat, the demand for justice, and that Christ died for sinners. And God is true to the promise, his desire of mercy, and that believers are forgiven. And so Paul says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So these were necessary because of God's decree, his covenant, his word, and our salvation. Absolutely necessary. And then he says, this Jesus, who had to suffer and die, is the long-awaited Christ. It's Paul's way of reasoning in a synagogue by way of syllogism. Deductive logic. Reasoning, right? The major promise. The promised Christ, when he comes, must suffer and die. All the scriptures teach that. 
That's the major premise. The minor premise, well, this Jesus, when he came, he suffered and died. Conclusion, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And it was that conclusion that evoked such varied responses to his preaching. The very one who died and rose again is the promised Messiah. The man born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth and crucified at Calvary and convincing people of the major premise that Christ must suffer and die was hard enough. But persuading them of the minor premise that Jesus died and rose and is the promised one was even harder. And so Paul concluded not with an argument, but he concluded with an implicit exhortation. And by the power of God's spirit, his preaching changed the lives of at least some. And this morning, Christ is presented to you, whoever you are, old or young. He's presented to you, and you have to decide whether or not you will receive him. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will not save anybody who doesn't believe. It doesn't matter if you sit in a pew. You can come to church every day of your life if you want. makes no difference. The Old Testament saints, you remember, had to lay their hands on the sacrifice to symbolize that their sins were laid upon the victim. Can you imagine taking your bull to the priest, putting your hand on him, and he slits his throat? It symbolized that your sins are imputed to him. And no thinking person could have missed the significance of that. My sins imputed to him. Analogously, you and I must lay the hand of faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ to appropriate him to ourselves. And the value of his blood and the power of his life will do good only if you receive him. He is the great gift and we receive him to have any benefit at all from his sacrifice. And for all who have embraced him as Savior, there is rejoicing for salvation. We have the privilege this morning of praising the Lord for the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For as Paul says, and with this I end, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God incarnate. And we're grateful this day that we have the privilege, the inestimable privilege of singing praise to the triune God who saved us from our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.